Okay, sounds good. Heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you for your mercy and grace. It is new every morning for us. And we thank you, Lord, that we can gather in freedom to learn about your word. We thank you also for our teacher, Bob, and for his healing and restoration. We thank you for him. Lord, we do pray that you'd help us think well on the biblical text today and learn what we can from the transfiguration about the glory of Christ and his right to be the lawgiver. Uh, We pray that you'd give words through Bob, and we pray for continued protection upon him. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's uh, learn something. What an exciting section of Scripture. Thank you for all your prayers. I, I haven't felt as good. I can't even tell you how many years it's been since I feel as good as I do right now. And the Bible makes more sense. Thank you. It's just the Bible is coming alive to me. And I am excited. The next three weeks, we're going to do the really heavy lifting in Ephesians, some of the more difficult and complex material in the New Testament. But thankfully, I had a lot of time. I spent a ton of time on it. And I'm not going to promote anybody's tradition. We're going to understand what Paul said, why he said it, to whom he said it, and what we learn from it. Plan to be in church the next three Sundays, because I'm going to do three in a row and finish the Barakah in Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. We've got 12 verses. I've got two one sermon on two verses, two, two. So it'll be six sermons through Barakah. The last three are the most complex material I think I've ever studied. And I haven't preached it until now because I didn't ever think I understood it. I'd rather wait until I understand something before I preach it. It's not going to help you for me to tell you what somebody else said 500 years ago. I need to understand it or I can't preach it. So I hope that she'll be there. Let's go to the Mount of Transfiguration. There we go. Verses 28, 29. We looked at this last week. Let's go back here. Some eight days after these sayings, he took along Peter and John and James and went up on the mountain to pray. And while he was praying, the appearance of his face became different and his clothing became white and gleaming. Now, we, we covered this. I don't know that I mentioned the gleaming or the, the radiance. It's like an effusion of radiance that, as it's described here by Luke. And so this is an extraordinary preview of the reality of the promises of God and that Jesus has spoken about future glory, and it's not what we see now. The Bible says that every fact is to be confirmed in the mouth of two or three witnesses. So we have witnesses here. Now we've got three witnesses from the New Covenant era here, the apostles, and we'll see in a moment we have two from the Old Testament, Moses and Elijah, and then the ultimate witness of all witnesses, God the Father himself, who speaks. And I'll tell you right now what the message is, and we better pay attention to it. 
This is my beloved son. Listen to him. So if you want to solve the problem of who speaks for God, God has solved it for us. Listen or hear, literally in the Greek, in this context means believe, take to heart, comprehend, and obey, because this is God's very word. So we'll see that. So this is a preview. Now, in the Old Testament, these things happened often on mountains. So there's, in Luke Acts, reviews and previews. I've told you that many times. It's a great literary device. Reviews and previews. Echoes from the past, previews of the future. So it says, after these sayings, he took them up. So let me read Luke 9, 26, 27, give you just a little bit of the context. Jesus said in Luke 9, 26, for whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the son of man will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory in the glory of the father and the holy angels. That's Luke 9, 26. So they're being told that they better listen to him and believe him. And it would be real easy to be ashamed because Jesus Christ was rejected by the powers that be. The theologians rejected him. The people with political power rejected him. I'm talking about the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes. They rejected him. And being his disciple wasn't the way to gain authority and popularity in Israel when Jesus was on the scene of history. We have to go back to what was said and what was real and not let church history continually deceive us. I've noticed now with Ephesians as I'm preaching through it, I think the biggest hindrance to people learning the Bible is church history. Now I'm saying the opposite of most everybody else. All this has already been figured out. You just submit to what somebody figured out and don't ask any questions. I got an offer in an email, church dogmatics by so-and-so. I don't care about somebody's dogmatics. I want to know what God said in the Bible. And somebody told me they were witnessing to their Catholic relative, and she went to uh, the Vatican. And, well, it has to be true. Look at all of this. Look at all. Look at the Vatican. It's so glorious. See, these places are really here. No, but they're not in the Bible. I admit there is a Vatican, but I deny that Peter created it. Okay. Did, the, did Jesus say his, his, to his followers, no, don't worry about future glory. When I go to my father, I want you to create glory on earth so we can have a religious city without me here. Did Jesus say that to anybody? No. So the biggest enemy of Jesus Christ is the Roman Catholic Church, along with all the other cults. And I don't mind saying it. This is just flat out evil. Thank you, sister. Because 
Jesus didn't say future glory was going to happen in Rome. He didn't go to the city with seven hills. He went up on a mount there. Now, some people think this is Hebron. Have you seen Michael Heiser's stuff on that? He looks in Matthew, and they were at Caesarea Philippi. If you look at a map of what Israel was like at that time. I was sitting at the dentist's office, and they had a National Geographic about Israel. and had a fold-out map of the places in the Bible. So I'm sitting there looking at Caesarea Philippi, the mounts. Some people think it's Tabor, but Heiser makes a real strong case that it was Hebron. So, because of Matthew, but we're here at Luke. But wherever it was, this is not in Rome. It's in Israel. Okay? The future glory is what? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, Luke 9.26, the Son of Man, Eric, explain the Son of Man to the people. The Son of Man, that's an allusion back to Daniel 7. So in Daniel 7, you have these successive kingdoms that are going to come about, but the Messiah is depicted as approaching the throne, and he's given this kingdom that's going to last forever. It's given to one who looks like the Son of Man. And so Jesus, when he uses it, it's his favorite self-designation. He uses it to link himself to that prophecy, showing that he's the Messiah and that he has the coming kingdom. So that's why he uses the Son of Man. It's his favorite yeah. self-designation. It goes back to Daniel. Exactly. Now, has this happened yet? Uh, no, he's never come into his kingdom yet. It has not happened. Right, right. So we can go through church history and read everything somebody said yeah. and not find this happening. Amen. St. Peter's Cathedral isn't it. <laughs> That's not it. That's not it. Right. <laughs> That's right. All right. Amen. All right. So do, you, do we understand that? Okay. We have to go to the Bible, not to church history. Here's why this is so important. Jesus Christ came in the flesh and tangibly spoke the words of God to real people in real history, flesh and blood people who saw him face to face and he spoke to them and they know what he said and they saw what he did. Somebody 500 years later, 700 years later, a thousand years later, fifteen hundred years later, eighteen hundred years later, I don't care who they were or what denomination they belonged to, they didn't see Jesus in the flesh. Amen. They weren't personally taught by him. Christ and his apostles speak for God. Paul actually saw the real tangible Jesus too, as one born out of time. Yes. I was just gonna say, you know, not not only as uh, that it's like it's not just tangible, but it goes beyond. You know what's? I, I mean, it's 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 also spiritual the scriptures because not only is it written by you know men that saw Jesus, but God's Spirit in them made sure that it was dead accurate. That there's nothing. They, yeah, they spoke Holy Spirit inspired words that are infallible. Exactly. So, dear ones, I'll try to do some of this as we go through Ephesians, and then should the Lord. Terry, and should I be able to keep functioning? I'm hoping someday to write about this more seriously because I'm going to have to go against almost all of church history. 
but I think I need to do it or write a book or something about this. I don't care whose creed or council or dogma it is. It's damaging because we're telling the people, don't bother with the priesthood of every believer. You don't have to study the Bible. You don't have to learn these things. Trust us, we figured it out. Swear on the dotted line and sign. I won't do it. Rick Warren wants you to sign before he even starts studying. You take an oath before you read his book. Well, I'm telling you right now, Lutheran and Reformed have it no better. They're more accurate biblically, but they do the same thing. Our document's binding, you sign. If you don't, you're out. Guess what? I'm not even going in. You can't kick me out. Okay? Prove to me from the Bible that the church is Israel and God will not keep his promises to Israel, and I might listen to you. But you know what they do? They teach, they teach, they teach, they get to Romans 11. We know nothing. We know nothing. We've got to stop this. I am so motivated. I have life, and I'm, I can mow the yard and stuff, and I believe it's to say this message. We can know what God said. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. You, dear ones, in this era of history, in 2018, can know what God said. And I'm telling you that Zwingli, Luther, Calvin, the popes, the councils, Trent, Jacob Arminius, Wesley, fine. We can judge them. All they can do is tell us what they think the Bible said. But we... we can judge whether they were right or wrong because nobody has ever improved on what Christ and his apostles said. And in the Old Covenant, it was Moses. How can we believe Moses? Because he himself was face-to-face with Yahweh tangibly, and Yahweh spoke to Moses real tangible words, and Moses heard them with real tangible ears. And when people say, oh, no, why Moses, Korah, all this, we, we can speak for God. No, you can't. Yes, dear. Yeah, I was just thinking also another reason, you know, maybe why not to study. But I, okay, so God uses people. But I was thinking when those men, I mean, who, who of the greatest teachers doesn't cry out to God for wisdom? I mean, it's, it's him that even the greatest of these. And if they cry out to God, that shows that they lack wisdom in some areas. Now they cry out so that they can express of what is divinely from God, but it is divinely from God. And that's, that's, that's the other beauty of the scripture. Not only is it God breathed, I mean, it's from the apostles, but it's God's spirit that made it accurate, but it's also God understood. Now, it's not saying that it's not tangible words. But who determines the meaning, Eric, the reader or the writer? I want to know, what, what's your okay, answer? Okay, okay, but Who it's, determines it's, the meaning? It's neither. The, it, the writer did not determine the original meaning. God did, and he used the writer. But, and also, the writer or the reader does not determine the original meaning. God does, but he'll use the reader. Okay, but everybody says God told them this and God told them that. How, you do, how do you settle it? The one is the most pious is right? No. Do you spend 20 years in a monastery depriving yourself and then you speak for God? No. no, the words themselves express God's meaning in objective language in real history. What the Holy Spirit, I, I've got to do this, Eric. I'm glad you brought this up because I, I need to do this. I think I've got a sermon of these next three where I cover that. 
about what is a mystery. The Ephesians had mystery religions and their devotees had to go through all these religious trials and hoops and processes. Then they got in on the mystery. But when God uses the mystery, he's talking about what would not be known had God not chosen to reveal it. And the point, let me say something to that question, because I, I asked the same questions I was in Bible college. If I'm more spiritual, more pious, then will I know? And my teacher says, stay in the Bible, learn the Greek. So I stayed in the Bible, learned the Greek, and then went and joined some uh, charismatic community trying to do the other side at the same time. And after five years of that, I went back to the Bible and the Greek. But here's the deal. There's a difference between truth that's objective and a person recognizing the significance of it. Okay? It's the same truth, and it never changes. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. That was true before I ever believed it. And me believing it didn't change the fact it was true. So now that I appreciate the significance and believe, and by God's grace obey, God is changing lives, but it's not because you got some direct inspiration out of the world of the spirits, because the lying spirits are very good at what they do. One more, and then i got to get back yeah, to the text. Yeah, God, teach us here, but um, I... So I was reading the other day in uh, Corinthians, or maybe a couple days ago, about how he gifts the Spirit in tongues. And it says, but you are to use, um, it says, be innocent to what is evil, but um, something of what is good. Is it someone else mature? I don't remember what it says. But it's like we're supposed to use our minds. He says, yes, you know, it's God's gift of the Spirit that he speaks in tongues, but we're also to use our minds and our Understanding, that's the word. Yeah, because... Even though it's God's gift, he says, you know, it's, yeah, it's not a human that's speaking in tongues. It's God. But he said, if you speak in tongues in the church, which is God's gift, it's not doing anyone good unless there's an interpreter. So it's, there's got to be understanding. And then uh, let me, rem- I've got to remember to talk about significance, which I just did. But James and John, Peter were on the mount and God spoke. Let me get back to this. Whosoever be ashamed of me and my words, why would they? Because you have to believe it. Jesus is in heaven. Do you see his glory? No. Do you see the new heavens and the new earth? No. But do you believe the promise? The son of man, Daniel, means Messiah, will be ashamed of him when he comes in his glory. Now, if you don't believe he's coming in his glory... Now you've got confliction. We're forced into a dilemma. If we believe these things, the religious world is ashamed of us. If we believe them, we're saying, I don't care if the world, religious world's ashamed of me. I'm more concerned about whether Messiah will be ashamed of me when he comes. That's what we need to think about. Who's going to be ashamed of us? Now, the apostles found out, now Luke Acts, two-volume work, that almost everybody was ashamed of the, them and their message on a scene of history. If you're thinking in a biblical worldview, you realize the whole world out there 
is a shame to you because you don't get with it. But he will come and he will come in the glory of the Father and the angels. Then he says, but I say to you truthfully, there are some of those standing here will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God eight days after these things. This is it. They get a preview of glory. Now, look on the thing. I don't have time to go to all these, but Genesis 22, 2. Remember that was go up and say, oh, go ahead, Eric. No, that's right. I don't want to interrupt your flow. But Genesis 22, 2. Remember Abraham? He took Isaac up. We talked about this last time. Exodus 3, Oreb, mountain. Exodus 19, went up on Sinai. Exodus 34. Let's go to the next one. So they get up there. Luke 9, 30 and 31. And behold, two men were talking with him who were Moses and Elijah, who appeared in glory and were speaking about his, the Greek says, Exodus, literally. Exodus, an allusion to the Exodus, which he's about to fulfill, a different word than you'd expect, in Jerusalem. So his departure is Exodus and fulfills plerao, which means, really implies the fulfillment of God's purposes. So he was saying, and this will be setting the stage for the narrative from Luke 9.51 all the way up until his triumphal entry, which is in Luke, a journey to Jerusalem to be rejected. Oh, yes, he's, he's going to be rejected by everything that was important to Israel. So there's an allusion to Moses. Now, what happened to Moses, by the way? Moses, there's so much to say about it. I think was last time I preached, didn't I talk about when I see the blood, I'll pass over you? The Passover, Moses stood up to Pharaoh. God defeated the gods of Egypt and brought the people out according to his promises to the patriarchs. Moses brought them to Sinai and God appears in smoke and power and glory. What happened to Moses? They reject him. Over and over, they reject Moses. If you want to be rejected, one of the best things you can do is to preach the two true words of God. That'll do it for you. Right? Including the gospel. God's redeeming purpose is focused on Jerusalem, but more than Jerusalem, it's also focused on the final fulfillment the future glory. It says in Luke 18.31, which comes toward the end of this travel narrative that starts in Luke 9.51, and he took the twelve aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, up, and all things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. Luke 18, 31, there's that fulfillment in Jerusalem. His rejection in Jerusalem is the accomplishment of God's purpose. Remember at times in the Gospels, they took him aside and said, well, no, Jesus, don't say that. No, 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 it's not good to, to be rejected. 
What did Jesus say one time? Get behind me, Satan. Get, yeah, get behind me, Satan. Satan is attempting, attempting him not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, Elijah and Moses, I think are, it's interesting why they would be there. Moses is certainly the one who prophesied about the coming of Messiah in Deuteronomy 18.15. And Elijah is interesting. Someone asked me, he said he wouldn't be able to be here, but one young man asked me about Elijah. And and it reminded me of some of the things that happened with Elijah. And I did some more research on that. I think it's very interesting. One of the things about Elijah that I really like was when he had the confrontation with the prophets of Baal. Remember they brought the, they couldn't decide who to serve, Yahweh or Baal. And uh, so what did Elijah do to make it even more difficult for Yahweh? Remember that? Yeah, go ahead. Open, do your mic and say something. Yeah, he put the water. Where yeah, the, pour where water the, on. Do yeah. you, when you pour water, does your fire burn better? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. If you want to light a fire, you don't pour water all over it. But he did that just to make sure that nobody thought he was tricking anybody. But what about the prophets of Baal? What did they do? They went to extremes. Did you know that religious zealots will even harm their own bodies to prove how zealous they are? They will do things that are actually very, very painful, self-deprivation, cutting themselves. Remember that's what these guys did? And Elijah mocked them. Well, maybe you better shout louder. I think Baal's got a little hearing problem. (laughs) Baal's hearing aids ran out of batteries. Oh, they didn't have those back then. Baal doesn't get it. They're cutting themselves and screaming. Baal can't hear them. This is pertinent to Asia Minor. I'll have just so much time when I'm doing Ephesians to explain some of the research, but In the mystery religions of Asia Minor, there's evidence of that kind of asceticism where people would go through great extremes hoping that they'd learn the mysteries or their God might hear them. Now, this would make a great booklet on prayer. Although, if you just tell the truth, it'd be only a one-page book. (laughs) But if you want false teaching, you can write huge books how to make sure God hears your prayer give away all your money fast for so many days go into silence and solitude walk the labyrinth go into a monastery go up and like in Tibet up with the Dalai Lama you got to do some extreme thing because I don't know God wants to hear you and when I explain this when people email us a critical issues commentary, it's hard for them to believe. Well, what do I got to do to get God to hear me? Go to the throne of grace. He hears you if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, not because you showed your piety, 
but because of what Jesus did for you. Okay? He's the one who suffered. He's the one who went to Gethsemane. He's the one who sweat, as it were, drops of blood. He's the one who ascended into heaven. And the prophets of Baal were willing to do anything and everything, but nothing happened. Elijah is here with Moses to show us it's not what we do for God, but what he did for us. What does it take to get Jesus to hear you? You simply believe his promises. Hebrews, we, if you listen to that radio series we, we did on Hebrews, and Hebrews 4.16, Jesus, I'll get to you in a moment here. Jesus ever lives to make intercession for us. He paid the price once for all. And we can be as confident as Elijah was that God heard him because of who Yahweh is and what he's done. And if Jesus Christ himself is interceding for us according to the will of God, now do we always know what the will of God is? We're free to ask God anything. But his providential will is whatever's perfect for us, but he uses prayer. I was so touched by it. I think I mentioned this this one email I got when they were praying for me because it looked like I was going to die and Jessica sent out this all to our readers. One guy sent back and says, I'm praying that God will do with you whatever will bring him the most glory. If that would have been to die, that, would, that was okay. But he's already heard us. He already intercedes for us. He's honored that we pray in the sense that we honor God by confessing our need for him. Prayer is us going to God according to the terms he's already laid out. False religion always is going to say, give more, do more, suffer more. And the prophets of Baal have all kinds of followers. Now in America, we typically don't get out swords and cut ourselves. Some people have. Some religions think if you go blow up a bunch of uh, people who are just women and children in a village, that, that whatever God they imagine is happy with you. There's a lot of people like that in the world, like the prophets of Baal, but it's not from God. Jesus did for us what we couldn't do for ourselves, and what he asks is we to believe him. And then he commands us to pray for one another. Does he hear us? Yes, he does. Okay, go ahead, Eric. Yeah, uh, before I even mention it, I just one thought that kind of has been on my heart for the last, boy, it's been a while, but kind of reinvigorated this a little bit ago is just the, the different uh, spiritual gifts that God gives in the church. And the only reason I wanted to mention that is because I'm not trying to, like, you know, oppose you. But I do realize one thing, that God does gift differently. In other words, I may have some different gift than you have. You may have some different gift than I have, which, you know, may be a, an interesting but it's God's design. It's just in the scripture. In first well, I'm trying to but. emphasize that. I, we, you know what? I want to make sure I get through more one or two slides. I, I want to just do one thing on prayer, too. Um, okay. 
so I was thinking about the earnestness of prayer. And to even begin on the earnestness of prayer, I, I think that, you know, maybe a, an easier, maybe a, I don't know. One thing that I learned about salvation that, I, that, I want, that applies to prayer is that it's God's grace that I did believe, and it's God's grace that I continue to believe. It's, it's a sin that he says will harden our hearts and separate us, but it's okay. still him that can, he's forgiven all my sins. And um, it's, it's not necessarily that I'm not sinning that I'm saved. It's, it has nothing to do with that. It's that I believe that I'm saved. And you believe that God is, has done what he said he did, his grace. which has died for your sins and provided forgiveness. Okay, yeah. So I was thinking in light of this, you know, it's for, for me it's easy to think of God's grace and his, over, his control over my life as a, just like a too much of a control. Like, I, like one day I, th- I thought to myself, you know what, if, if God's got it all under control, what am I striving for? What am I toiling for? You know, I'm just going to take the day, just rest, and, you know, he's going to work out the details. And you know what, I was lazy that day, and I, and I got nothing done. So it's like, you know, it's... Well. Well, I, the, my thought is, you know, that, yes, it's his grace, but as we seek him, it's, it's more than just, you know, he, he draws us. He, said, he gives us promises by his grace. He's got a, a way that we should be living in. Well, you know, Eric, let me remind you, I, I, we talked about this. Remember I told you the words of a song that helped me when I was your age? Uh-huh. Not that you're young, but compared to me, you are. Sure. <laughs> um, there was a Keith Green song when I was in... Bible College and shortly after, thereafter really summarized what I think is very practical. Mm-hmm. He said, do your best, pray that it's blessed, mm-hmm. and God will take care of the rest. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, and, is that, does that make any sense? Yes. Okay. And, and, but the best, the best, there's a reason why it's best because if we if we think that when we're praying, you know, and, and I used to do this all the time, you know, oh, dear God, you know, uh, help those. And, you know, just not even with words, you know, help the countries to come to you and help the... And I'm not, you know, passion, I'm not thinking, I'm not using my fullness of my mind to be like, God, save Kim Jong-un, you know, free those, your believers there by your grace, you know, give us good laws that we can follow here. You know, just, it's like, if we, if we fall asleep, you know, in our prayers, it's like, we're supposed to be serving him and seeking him with his best. And there's, there's more, I mean, it's his grace that, that he gives us anything, but it's also, he says... Um, well, I, you know, I've got to keep going here, okay? Okay. We've got to get back on track. Uh, I've got to get back to this. Just think about, just go to God and pray and do your best, and it'll, it'll make sense as you go along. Now, in Acts 15, 13 and 19, James, remember James was one of the guys on the mountain, right? Peter, James, and John. And then James, there's, there's an issue that comes up in Acts 15, and that's about what are we going to do with the Gentiles? After all this rejection from the Jewish leadership, they had a hard time, even after that, even after the Mount of Transfiguration, believing that Jerusalem wasn't going to be the center of the church. They believed Jerusalem was going to be everything. This is before 70 A.D., so they had a big debate about what to do with these Gentiles because they're not like us, right? Acts fifteen thirteen to 19. And after they had stopped speaking, James, one who was up there, answered saying, brethren, listen to me. Akuo, in the Greek, same in the imperative. Remember, God said, listen to the son. Simeon, Simeon has related how God 
first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles the people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name. It says the Lord who made these things known from long ago. Therefore, as my judgment, we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles. The Old Testament prophesied that Gentiles would come to faith in Messiah. And James was one that God used to say, don't make them follow Jewish law. And so he raises up in the fallen booth of uh, David. Now it says here, when they saw his glory, let me read 32 and 33. Now Peter and his companions had been overcome with sleep, but when they were fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. And when they were leaving him, Peter said to Jesus, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us make three tabernacles, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah, not realizing what he's saying. Now, James later understood this better. That's why I have the Acts 15. No, this isn't a permanent situation. They were talking about his departure. And as I was studying this, I came to think of another analogy besides the prophet of Baal dispute. Who was it who departed all the way up to heaven in the Old Testament? Elijah, right? And so Elijah's there when they're talking about Jesus' departure. So there may be a little uh, echo there of that whole issue of his departure. It says in Amos 9, 11, and 12, in that day I'll raise up the fallen booth of David and wall up its breaches, and I'll raise up its ruins and rebuild it as the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. So this fallen booth of David is something that is being yet future, but yet people are being added to the company who will be part of what happens in the eschatological glory. So what this means for us, and it took a while, the whole book of Acts for the disciples to really get this, because they had a hard time giving up the idea it was going to be in Jerusalem. It was really hard. I'll talk about this. I, don't, I, I probably won't get to it here, but there was a big deal going on when the Samaritans came to the Lord. And remember, the apostles were still in Jerusalem. There was a persecution. Everybody left but the apostles. They stayed in Jerusalem where they were being persecuted. So when the Samaritans came to Christ, the apostles had to go down there to verify that that's what really happened because they couldn't believe in practical terms, it's really going to be Gentiles coming into the church. Dr. David Peterson, whose great commentary I have on Acts is very helpful. With this, says Peterson, with this promise of restoring the rule of David's line, James highlights a theme that has 
featured in Luke's birth narratives, Luke 1, 32 to 33, 69, 2, 10 through 11, and Peter's preaching, Acts 2, 30 to 36, and Paul's preaching, Acts 13, this, quote, the seating of Jesus on David's throne and installation as his royal son of God have already taken place through Jesus' resurrection and exaltation to the right hand of God. It's already happened. We don't have to conquer Jerusalem and set up the headquarters now. The headquarters moved to heaven. We're thinking, well, but if it's in Jerusalem, we could go over there and maybe talk to somebody and be closer to God. There's nothing wrong with going to Jerusalem. But when you do, are you actually closer to God than you were before you got on the plane? No, you just have better appreciation for how literal the Bible really is. So um, the restoration of Israel follows from the reestablishment of David's kingdom in Jesus' resurrection, Luke 1, 68 through 69, though James has not developed the theme. So this is the point. Every time someone, be they Jew or Gentile, hears the gospel and repents, this kingdom is being populated with citizens. That's what history is about. God determines how long history goes on. But the whole time history goes on, every time someone comes to faith in Christ, permanent citizen of heaven is added. The neo-pagans hate this. Okay? If you're a Christian and you take the Bible literally, you are seen as the enemy of all things. Why? Because the preeminent religion in the world right now is neo-pagan nature worship. And humans they see as a problem. Okay? We don't want humans. They ruin everything. Nature is a goddess. Humans are polluting the goddess and making the goddess angry. Because we do things like drive to work. No, literally, you're evil if you drive to work. I told somebody that wasn't true and she got so mad. She said, well, we're not going to talk about that again. It was at a doctor's office. I said, well, excuse me, well, I don't feel guilty driving my car to the doctor. Here is a newsflash. The earth is not your mother. (laughs) Another person I was witnessing to, oh, I put myself in the hands of the universe. The universe does not care about you. God created the world out of nothing. But there's too many people. Well, what did God say? Fill the earth and populate. But why? But it's going to cause all these problems. Yes, it does, because we live in a fallen world. But out of all these people, God has chosen that some will believe and populate this glorious future kingdom. Now, some say to me, literally say, well, that means you're going to go out and be a just pollute everything 
instead of taking your oil to the recycled place, you're going to go dump it down a storm drain. <laughs> no, I do not dump my oil down the storm drain. I take it to the recycled place. I believe we need to care for our corner of the earth that we live on as good citizens. But the point of history is to populate heaven with believers from all of the nations. Does that make sense? So the building up of this tabernacle is happening in church history. The final glory will be seen by all at the end when the Son of Man comes with his angels to bring judgment to his enemies and salvation to those who believe. Now there's not comprehending. Notice here, wanting the three tabernacles now meant he doesn't get it. Do you see that? He He didn't realize, not realizing. Later, the same thing happens. In Luke 18, 31 through 34, I'll read it to save time. I'll just read it. This is a thematic in Luke Acts. Luke 18, 31. Then he took the 12 aside and said to them, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem. There's the ascent from Luke 9, 51 on. All things which are written through the prophets about the Son of Man will be accomplished. For he will be handed over to the Gentiles, will be mocked and mistreated and spit upon. And they have scor- and after they've scourged him, they will kill him. And the third day he will rise again. But the disciples understood none of these things. And the meaning of his statement was hidden from them, divine passive. And they did not comprehend the things that he was saying. Same thing happened earlier, so this is a preview. They don't understand an amount. They don't understand even when the rejection is happening because it was not yet revealed. It was revealed, but they didn't get it. That happens later in Acts. Yes? Uh, Two points quickly, then we'll get back on track. First of all, it sounds like the first pope wants to start building the Vatican already. Peter? Yeah, Yeah, well, he wasn't the pope. Yeah, that's a good point. The second point is that this is seen to be the centerpiece of the entire Bible. Uh, The Old Testament leads up to it. They talk about the departure, and then the resolution is what happens At at the end. Yeah, that's a good point. The center of history. So they didn't understand. We maybe don't get this, but in Luke 18, there's a huge irony. If you read the Son of Man in Daniel being spit on and mocked and rejected is not the idea you get. Do you want to comment on that, Eric? Yeah, in, in Daniel 7, he comes in glory. And so that's what the disciples are expecting. They, they're missing the suffering passages in Isaiah 53. They're featuring Messiah comes, glory in Jerusalem, everything's wonderful. And so that's why, as Bob is pointing out, they're having a hard time grasping it. Yeah. The more we cannot let preconceived religious ideas determine how we read the better we'll understand this. Because the cross is an instrument of torture. It's not a piece of gold jewelry that you get at the jewelry store. And this was a sign of rejection. This is an allusion to the serpent that was put up on the pole in the Old Testament. Whoever looked at it was healed. 
the Son of Man comes in glory, but the Son of Man's rejected. See, in their world, with what they knew, that didn't make sense. Because they couldn't put Daniel and Isaiah 53 together. But the Bible takes Daniel and Isaiah and the Psalms and the Pentateuch and Deuteronomy and puts it all together. All things must be fulfilled. All things. God cannot lie. His purpose for history is moving on. And as it does, person after person who believes becomes part of this company that will be part of the glorious kingdom that's in the future. The only way that it'll ever make sense is if you believe the promises of God. Okay? Now, while he was saying this, Luke 9.34, a cloud formed and became, began to overshadow them. They were afraid as they entered a cloud. This is an awesome thing. Then a voice came out of the cloud saying, This is my son, my chosen one. Listen to him. This is so important. If we get this, we're going to get a lot of other scripture. Listen to him. Who? Jesus. Who did he appoint to speak for him? His apostles. And when the voice had spoken, Jesus was found alone. Now a cloud on a mount is an allusion here to Exodus 24, 15 to 18. I'll read that. Then Moses went up to the mountain, and the cloud covered the mountain, and the glory of the Lord rested on Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it for six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses from the midst of the cloud. And to the eyes of the sons of Israel, the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a consuming fire on the mountaintop. And Moses entered the midst of the cloud as he went up to the mountain. And Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Oh, my word. It's just unbelievable. Moses had been on a mountain. Moses had seen glory. Moses had entered into a cloud. And now we have another mountain and another cloud and more glory. But Moses disappears. Gone. Where is he? Did did this time God say, listen to Moses? He did in the Old Testament, but what is he saying now? Listen to him. I've debated people who claim that Moses speaks for God and even beyond what Jesus did. That's not true. Jesus is the new greater Moses, the very son of God. Listen to him. Jesus was found alone. This isn't just some silly detail that doesn't need to be there. If Luke wanted to say, listen to Moses and Elijah, he could have said that. 
but he said, listen to him, Eric. Yeah, th- this is really... Elder, Eric the Elder. Yeah, and we got so many Eric's here. We got the Eric the Elder, no, no, the middle-aged, yeah, yeah. and the younger. And we had okay, Paul, and we had Paul. Otherwise, we, we're going to recruit uh, any, any Gary's or Peter, anyone else yeah. who wants to okay. contribute. All I was going to say is that, um, you know, this is a huge, this is the big, this is a huge point. And I'm just kind of echoing what you're saying, because... I, what what has kind of helped me a lot is that I've learned about those co- the covenants, the Old Testament covenants, and I've, I've mentioned it before, and that holds the key so much, the, the Mosaic covenant, and then all of the prophecies. We can't even, it's beyond the scope of what we can do now, but there's so much prophecy that there would be a new covenant, and here it's affirming that that new covenant is in Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, Deuteronomy 18, 15 in the Septuagint. Listen in Deuteronomy 18.15. I'll read it to you. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet, Moses said, like me, from among you, from your countrymen, you shall listen to him. Oh, how much fun we could have if we had time to go back into the Pentateuch and see what happened every time somebody challenged Moses' authority. Eric, you're a theologian. Why don't you tell us what happened whenever they challenged that Moses spoke for God? Korah went down. Miriam got leprosy. It wasn't good. (laughs) Uh, Fast summary. (laughs) Yeah, Korah went right into Sheol and did not pass gold. Right, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) Now, why is it such a big deal who speaks for God? That's what they were saying. Why, Why does it have to be Moses? Because of the objectivity of divine revelation. That's why the new apostolic reformation is heretical. These apostles and prophets have nothing but mystical notions in their brain. They they were not there. They're like Korah. I hop in Kansas City. Korah. Redding, California. Korah. Oh, we have guys that are so pious. They have 24-hour prayer for day after day. I had a parent call me, say, I've lost my son to this. What can you do? I wrote an article refuting it. But they seem so pious and so holy, and God spoke to them. No, it's not true. There's a guy now who was a famous, what, the Bible answer man now went to Greek Orthodoxy? who teach apotheosis or theosis, you can become a god. More mysticism, more paganism. Who speaks for God? When they questioned Moses under the old covenant, they dropped in a shoal. Are we going to question Jesus now? We don't have to listen to the eyewitnesses. Listen, there's an imperative in the Greek and the Septuagint in the future Now we have God himself saying, this is my son, listen to him, in the imperative, using the same Greek word. You know what an imperative is? Exclamation mark. Well, people now, they do these texts and tweets, and I'm not so good at that because I need a big keyboard for my big old hands. One good thing about Sheldon, Iowa, when you were in junior high, you could not get out of eighth grade until you could type. Real quick. Um, yes. 
the, the word for question in Hebrew is almost exactly the same as the word Sheol. Really? Yeah. In the Sheol. Question. Thank you, Ed. So I, we had to learn how to type. Now, I think I got, let's look at this slide. What the Mount of you know, Transfiguration is doing in the bigger scheme of Luke-Acts is preparing in Luke-Acts for the journey to Jerusalem. It starts in Luke 9.51. So they have it reinforced. Future glory awaits, but not right now in Jerusalem. What awaits in Jerusalem? Rejection and shame. What were they looking for? The Son of Man coming in his glory with the holy angels. That's future. For now, we go to Jerusalem to be rejected. I hope I can give you a little appreciation for authorial intent as a valid hermeneutic uh, and a a way to read. So Luke 9, 51 and 53, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, taken up, by the way, is an echo of 2 Kings 2, 9 through 11, where Elijah was taken up. So Moses was on the Mount Transfiguration. He was the one who spoke for God in the Old Testament. Listen to him. Elijah was on the Mount of Transfiguration. He was taken up. Jesus will be taken up. Echoes and previews. That's how Luke writes. Echoes, reviews, previews. He set his face. That's why I chose ESV here. That's literal. Pross upon his face. Where did you hear set his face before? Eric, go ahead. In Isaiah. Isaiah. Yeah, and also Jeremiah Jeremiah 21. Yeah, the prophets in the Old Testament were the ones who set their face like flint. I will not be going to the left or to the right. I will not be dissuaded. Set your face like flint. Nobody's going to stop this. I will go to Jerusalem. Oh, no, no. Be it far from you. Get thee behind me, Satan. Jesus said. And he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparation for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set. Says that twice in this section toward Jerusalem. The Samaritans had a debate a dispute with the Jews about where to worship. John 4 brings that up. But this is not done yet. This is so cool. Don't you love to read? Because later, the gospel is going to come to Samaria and God is going to save Samaritans and they had to decide who they're going to Except and on what terms, and then there was a false magician. If I remember right, I think I'm going to use that in one of my applications in Ephesians. I think, I think that's true. I've got too many sermons written, but I won't lose them because they're on the PowerPoint. When we get there, it'll happen. And uh, it's very interesting. So this is an allusion to the prophets. Elijah's an echo of ascending. 2 Kings 2, 9 through 11, and when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I'm taken from you. Elisha said, please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, you have asked a hard thing, yet if you see me as I'm being taken from you, 
it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they were, they still went on and talked, behold, the chariots of fire and the horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into the heavens. So we have here a preview of Jesus ascending. Now it doesn't end in Jerusalem. He goes to Jerusalem to be rejected and mocked and scourged and spit upon. But then afterwards he appears to witnesses and he said, you shall be my witnesses from Jerusalem. And then Samaria is mentioned. Let me give you this. Don't let this escape you. If you learn how to read, you can be a theologian yourself. It's all about reading. If I can do anything in my life, it would be great if, if I could, could give back what my teachers gave to me. I, one of my best classes, the teacher said, the goal for this class is I'm going to teach you how to read. It's already there. We just have to read. It's not secret. It's not based on IQ or degrees or parchment. It's reading. Here's how we read this. And see, we can decide who has the best reading. I think next week in my sermon, I'm going to have to repent of having read badly in 2006. I'm going to talk about how I misunderstood a passage and it hurt my theology in 2006 and I want to make it right in the same place where I made it wrong. I misread up Matthew 24, and it caused me to teach air to the church in 2006. I will repent of that. I've already have, but I'll publicly do so next Sunday. Because I didn't understand Matthew 24 as a chiasm. Now, here's the deal. Samaria rejects Messiah because his face was going to Jerusalem. But when the gospel comes to the Samaritans in Samaria, including people that, like Philip, wasn't one of the people in Jerusalem, the apostles come down to validate, well, the Samaritans did come to Christ. We're going to talk about that. And there's a preview in John 4, but that's not Luke X. Okay. Uh, well, Elijah ascended. One more, and then we got to go, and we'll... Give it our, to our, our, our favorite Lutheran brother here. Okay. All right. The, the Elijah thing, I think, is intended by Luke. All right. Or by God who inspired Luke. And so is the Moses one. And right now, here's why we need to lay aside all of our prejudices. All humans are prejudiced. All of them. Every person, every tribe, every genealogy, every social, economic, everywhere you can imagine, humans are prejudiced. And here's why we need to lay that aside. Because God is going to save people from tribes that aren't our favorite. The Samaritans were not the favorite of the people of Jerusalem. But God decided to add them to his future glory and when they got there Peter saw what was going on said they received the same gift as we did God accepted them 
If God accepts somebody, we better do it too. Is that right? Can God save a Dutchman? How about a German? Irish? It doesn't matter. Polish? African? Asian? European? Yeah. There's nobody so bad that God can't save them. And every people has some bad stuff in their past. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for letting us read and for the great message you've given us to learn. May our prejudices be muted and driven down so that we open our hearts to whoever it is that you choose to add to your kingdom and help us to be proclaimers of the gospel. And we say, even so, come quickly, Lord Jesus, in thy holy name. Amen.